You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on Friday, October 5th, where it feels more like the beginning of a week rather than an end of the week. This is going to go into the weekend with the Kavanaugh vote. Lots going on today, but this is your one-stop shop for independent conservative thought, your respite from the twilight zone of false binary politics, false tribalism, false data, false premises. Um, you know, I've, I've been chomping at the bit to get back in front of this microphone. A lot going on. We have some good content at CR, at CRTV as usual. Um, so I was going to wait until the vote ends, but, you know, it's it's Friday morning here, and I'm just sick of listening to Schumer and McConnell, both of them talk. I'd rather be waterboarded at uh, Guantanamo Bay than listen to these clowns. But, um, you know, we're going to assume for now, and I hate assuming because things change, that this will be a victory for Republicans, for conservatives, for the rule of law, for due process, for decency, um, especially with all the information that has come out now, which which really now indicates that Ford was just downright lying. Um, but no need to go into that for now. We're going to assume, you know, with the news as as of this uh, broadcast, that Susan Collins will vote on the procedural motion. Obviously. The final vote will not take place till tomorrow afternoon, assuming everything goes well. I'm going to assume for this discussion that they hold the line, that they're able to control the rhinos or enough of them. And then once they get the votes, then Joe Manchin, maybe one other, um, will jump in because the outcome no longer matters. So then they could play their game back home and, you know, the double game that, that the red state Democrats are so good at playing. Let's assume he gets confirmed. You know, the hallmark of this show is to be forward-looking, not reactive, not, okay, I don't know what to talk about unless the liberal media says something, then I can respond and react. No, no, no. What is it we believe in? What is it we want? What are the opportunities that have opened up from this nomination? What does it mean for the judiciary? What does it mean for other issues? What does it mean for the election in November, and what does it mean beyond November? Lot to talk about, and that's why, you know, again, I wanted to put this out yesterday, but there was so much in flux, and you never know. So obviously, we'll revise and extend our remarks here if anything changes, uh, you know, before the day is over. But that's what I, I want to get to. What happens after Kavanaugh is confirmed? What does it mean for us? Now, I do want to take a detour before we start. I don't want to forget important um, important news. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm going to call the balls and strikes. And when Republicans or Trump or conservatives do stupid things that aren't conservative and aren't good policy, aren't good politics— I'm going to call it out, and I've, I've really ripped Trump a lot on signing these stupid 
bills from Congress that he promised to veto, that he promised to fight against. He promised to change the culture. There's a lot going on in domestic policy I really do not like. But there are certain aspects, not all of foreign policy, but certain aspects of foreign policy that are very important. And there really is a sea change, a cultural shift in the use of diplomacy and international relations, the effective use of all the tools of statecraft, economic, diplomatic, sanctions. What this administration is doing on Iran is very heartening. And I wanted you guys to know that. You know, it's hard to please me, and you're always like, oh, Daniel, say something positive. So here's something positive I want to say. I was on um, Liz Wheeler's show, terrific uh, show, uh, One News Network. You know, when you're not tuned into CRTV, One News Network, uh, great allies, really good content there, uh, much better than tuning into Fox. So I was on her show talking about this. Trump, a lot, you know, really with the help of John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, is owning Iran and owning the Europeans. We were sold a bill of goods, this lie that, well, it's either we have the Iran deal and give them everything they want, or we must go to war. We always said that if you just merely refrain from self-immolating and you use America's power to its fullest, the mixture of its economic prowess being the biggest oil biggest supplier of oil and biggest market demand for oil, we could shut them down with sanctions, choke them off, force disquiet among their people, which is happening now, and push out the regime and actually have regime change in the one place in the Middle East where it will actually work because Iran is more is younger. They're not Arab. They have this Persian identity and nationalism. Um, they easily would get rid of the the Islamic uh, mullahs, and unlike these non-nation states like Afghanistan and, Sy- and Syria, we could actually make it work, and we don't really need troops for it. And that's what Trump has been doing. By ramping up our domestic production, which we've been doing anyway, we are now the biggest producer of oil, biggest producer of natural gas, and very soon we will be the biggest exporter. Not yet, but we will be. So we are both dominant in terms of the market demand, in terms of selling the products, and also in terms of exporting it. So what happened was a lot of people were like, well, the sanctions aren't going to work. And meanwhile, there are more robust sanctions we could put on if we actually had a normal Republican running the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but instead we have Bob Corker. There's more we can do, but what Trump has done unilaterally that he could do has been so effective, the Europeans worked with Iran, China, and Russia, pulled out all the stops to try to circumvent the sanctions. But there's something very interesting. Money talks, everything else walks. And all these transnational energy companies, now you can imagine all their CEOs are these globalists bought into the European order, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Their first obligation, if they want to stay in power, is to their shareholders. And they know that the US market is much bigger than any other market. And they would and and the Trump administration has made it very clear this is not a hollow threat. They don't want to be caught on our bad side. So not a single company is joining this European kind of um work around the sanctions. So 
the sanctions are so effective. You know, they were told on the one hand, it was like told it's mean, but then then they say, well, it's not going to work. Well, which one is it? Obviously, it's working. Iran went to the International Court of Justice under the UN and cried, "Oh, this is terrible!" And they asked them to throw it out under this 1955 Treaty of Amity. Now, obviously, the treaty we um, made with them to cooperate economically that was under the Shah. It's like saying you have a treaty with Germany before the rise of Hitler and then applying it while Hitler is in power. It's a different. It's a different Iran. It's a joke. Um, now, so the court was in an interesting position. Because Trump has been so solid on the UN pulling out – they didn't pull out of the IJC, but they did pull out of the ICC, the International Criminal Court. They pulled out of the you know, uh, refugee agency, UNRWA, and so they know that we'll just tell them to shut up. So they don't want to give a ruling and look irrelevant by us not listening to it. So they actually threw out most of Iran's claims, except for they said, no, we, we have to put an injunction on the suspension of sanctions for humanitarian type of goods, which is – it's a straw man anyway for a number of reasons You know, because they wanted to appear relevant, but they couldn't cross us. Folks, this is what it means to speak softly and carry a big stick. This is the effective use of our economic prowess, diplomatic prowess. We are completely owning Iran and the Europeans on their own game, and I'm very proud of this administration for that, and I think it's important to put that out. I don't want to spend too much time on it. So that's that. One other just good piece of news that I think is important to um, focus on is the economic news. I mean the job numbers came out, and – the unemployment rate is at 3.7%, the lowest since December 1969. And I think what's really astounding is if you look at the raw numbers of not just the rate, but the number of Americans unemployed, it's less than 6 million, meaning unemployed, those that are looking, those that want a job, that are you know in the workforce, workforce age population, um, you know, the number of people in raw numbers is the lowest since December 2000, and that's really a remarkable stat. If you look at – because you can't manipulate that. That's in raw numbers um, given that the working age population grew 45 million over the same pe- period. And yeah, not just the rate, but the the rate is the lowest in 69. The number is the lowest since 2000. So that is that is good news. But – We've reached a point where people don't really vote their pocketbook. They vote their values. Now, I use the term values very loosely. You know, when, when we would say values voters 10, 15 years ago, we meant pretty much abortion and gay marriage. Uh, this is just more broadly, and it works to the left and the right. It's who you are. Because we have this connectivity and this endless social media nonstop, everyone's in their face, that is always going to drown out economic news. Security, terrorism, riots, crime, immigration, who you are, your values, and the left has their issues. And that's where I'm going to bring it back to Kavanaugh. So I just wanted to get that kind of that that piece of news out just before I forget, because I think it's important we highlight the good news. I think where there is enduring um, victories, I think. It is in foreign policy, not all foreign policy. We still lost another soldier in Afghanistan for nothing. Trump's intuition is right, but he still has not changed that. That does need to change. Being tough on Iran means you don't have to be tough on Afghanistan because there's nothing to be tough on. There's nothing to do there. 
Iran's where it's at. Um, but what is not going to be an enduring victory unless we make it an enduring victory is the courts. And I want to elaborate on that now. So, you know, assuming Kavanaugh gets confirmed and sits in oral arguments on, well, I guess Monday's Columbus Day, so the court, the, you know, federal government is off, no one else is, but Tuesday will be his first day. Again, assuming nothing funny happens in the next number of hours. Great victory, right? Well, I, it's better than caving. I want to put the courts in perspective for you how this is another example of the thesis we've been developing on the show that when that even when Republicans cave on 99 issues and actually precisely because they cave on 99 issues and it sets up a battle on issue number 100 and they hold the line and everyone's like, well, Dan, you, you have to admit this is a big fight. This is important that they hold the line and we have to focus on just issue 100 in a vacuum right now. Don't distract me on another 99. And when they actually hold the line, Daniel, you got to give them credit. I understand, but where is the strategy for dealing with the first 99 and the fact that we're going to continue to have 100, 100, 102 precisely because we've given them that amount of territory? And nowhere is this more evident than with the courts. I want to discuss. Um, I want to discuss where this is headed, what I see happening with the courts. Now, first off, just, you know, some of you might have seen this, but late Thursday night, Brett Kavanaugh dropped a personal op-ed in the Wall Street Journal making the case for him, kind of returning to the old... Brett Kavanaugh. Like, look, you know, anyone would have been enraged and emotional when accused of being a sexual predator. Maybe I said a few things I should have said, but he went on to repeat his same, um, you know, um, his same diatribe that he had when he was originally nominated. And, you know, let me just read to you from this line. Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, he did this just for three members. His audience were three rhino senators, and maybe he doesn't mean this. But he was saying this before the sex scandal ever came out. This is who he is. Um, as Justice Kennedy showed us. Again, remember, he is a Justice Kennedy clerk, not a Scalia clerk. A judge must be independent, not swayed by public pressure. Okay, fine, that's fine. Our independent judiciary is the crown jewel of our constitutional republic. The Supreme Court is the last line of defense for the separation of powers and for the rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution. <laughs> right there, that's the constitutional crisis. That's not true. That's a, that, the guy is a judicial supremacist. The guy, and, and this is the irony as I'm talking to you. I'm listening to Schumer and these guys talk about, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh as if he's Roy Moore or something. And that's the laugh. If we're, if they're going to take a guy who's a milquetoast Karl Rove, Karl Rove in a robe, I mean, he spent 12 years well within the mainstream of legal thought, and that's not a good thing. And yet they're going to treat him like 
Daniel Horowitz. So you may as well get a guy who's going to be like that. You may as well get a guy who's going to do what they accuse him of doing. I don't mean the sex stuff. I mean the jurisprudential stuff. But we don't. So, I mean, you know, you have that Candace Owens quote where she's like, man, once he gets on there, he's going to stick it to them. I I believe it's 10 times more likely he's going to want to show that he's not who they accuse him of. It so bothers him that he's going to go and screw us like on an immigration ruling. I'm just telling you. So let's not forget that. Let's not also forget that John freaking Roberts, John Roberts is going to move much farther to the left because he's going to be terrified about the delegitimization of the court, which the left is already delegitimizing it. They're basically not going to listen to the Supreme Court. You know, when you have 650 law professors come out and say this man shouldn't be confirmed because he doesn't have the temperament, basically the allegations are are bogus, but he was too spirited in defending himself. When this guy was like a doorknob for the legal profession in his entire life, that is a harbinger. I'm telling you, they're signaling they are going to delegitimize the Supreme Court. That's where they're headed. And that's why I fear that Kavanaugh and Roberts, for sure, maybe even Gorsuch, maybe some others, might go out of their way to, to not take up these lower court cases. And again, what's ironic is if you look on the docket next week, the coming weeks, the Supreme Court cases are pretty boring. Now, in in, in a sane world, that that that's good. That's how I believe the court should be. I don't think they should deal with political issues. The problem is the lower courts are absolutely dealing with the political issues that I'm going to get to in a minute, and the Supreme Court's being very slow to take them up, if ever. My belief is I don't – see, I'm all for the left delegitimizing the Supreme Court's supreme power as the supreme branch. I take that any day of the week. The problem is we're going to get the worst outcome where they delegitimize the Supreme Court, but now they're going to go to the forum shop lower courts and use them to overrule the Supreme Court. Literally, the Supreme Court will say one thing. They'll go to a lower court, and they'll overturn it. You think I'm lying? They're doing that already. They're doing that right now with a bunch of immigration cases. They're doing that right now. And if we don't have a movement, and I think Jeff Sessions is, is, is very much starting there, to try to, he's indicating that he's not going to listen to some of these lower court rulings, but we need a robust movement around him. Otherwise, it's not going to help with the courts. It's not going to help. Let me illustrate to you with news. Again, you're not going to hear this elsewhere unless you follow my Twitter timeline. You probably saw this. What I mean by this is fundamentally not going to help with the courts. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't confirm Kavanaugh. We're not going to get anyone else at this point, and I think just justice-wise, it's important culturally with this whole accusing people out of nowhere to to make a statement. I'm not denying that, but this shouldn't be the only thing we do. We need to don't lie to yourself and say this is going to save the courts. Same thing I say: you want to vote for Republicans in November, fine, but don't lie to yourself what it's going to do if you don't have a broader agenda. What to do besides? for spending five minutes in a booth every Tuesday, every first Tuesday, every other November to vote Republican. Oh, let's just nominate better people to the bench, which aren't even as good as we can get anyway. Um, And that will save the courts. You can't save them because you're playing their game. They rig it. For 60 years, 
Supreme Court supremacy worked in their favor. If they feel they're losing the Supreme Court, they'll have lower court supremacy and just do it there. And the Supreme Court's only taking up 60 cases a year out of 50,000. So they're going to get a lot of their stuff through with the Ninth Circuit, Fourth Circuit, D.C. Circuit, several others. But I want to talk about these cases before the court. So a California judge, Northern District of California, ruled that President Trump cannot enforce the statutes governing temporary immigration, temporary protected status, TPS. Um, I'm going to link to in show notes just the background. This is actually, ironically, there was another lawsuit that a judge indicated he would rule this way, but it was still oral arguments. He didn't issue a ruling. That was a judge in Boston. So they actually lodged two cases. Notice they go to all the most liberal areas, get their judges. And I mean, just in general, it's amazing how any illegal could, any group, third party group on behalf of illegals could get standing to sue policies. Whereas if you and I tried to do that as citizens, you know, I don't like all these economic policies or whatever. It is so hard to get standing, as it should be, but illegals immediately get class action status. Immediately. Um, Unbelievable. But this Judge Chen, extremely liberal guy, basically said that Trump cannot make temporary protected status temporary. For him, it must be permanent because he's a racist. Because he doesn't like people of color, um, therefore, he must continue TPS. Now, again, TPS is designed, you know, it was, it was not an amnesty program for people that happened to be here illegally. It was people that happened to be on vacation when, let's say, a hurricane hits in your home country. Now, when you see tens of thousands of people apply for the status, you know, well, you didn't have tens of thousands of people from Nicaragua happen to be going to Disney World when Hurricane Mitch hit or whatever, 1998. That's not what it was. They were here illegally anyway, and they took advantage of it. So A, they didn't qualify. Most of them are illegals. But B, even if it's real, it's only temporary. It's only for six months. Now, they've had it for a lot of them for up to 20 years. And, you know, Bush and Obama kept extending it. But again, this is another example of judges saying that when previous administrations abused their power to really abuse waiver authority, Trump can't merely just not do that and follow the base statute. Now, as I noted before, so, so this applies to Sudan, Haiti, and El Salvador and Nicaragua. Now, there's a lot to say on it. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty. Um... Other than the fact that, you know, it's very important to realize that under statute, they were actually stripped of power. You know, we talk about jurisdiction stripping. Statute actually prohibits lawsuits. That You have no cause of action to go to court and rule on such a thing. It's all up to the president whether he wants to continue. You can't force the president to continue in temporary status 20 years after a natural disaster hit. Or in the case of Haiti, whatever it is, eight years, seven years, whenever they had the, the earthquake. 
that determination rests with the executive branch. A court can't mandate that. Court can't mandate that. Um. So this Judge Chen. So a a he, he it's literally illegal. He has no power to adjudicate such a case. Now I'm not clear from the Justice Department statement whether they they're just going to disregard it. It was as strong of a statement as I've seen, but still I I have to speak to them. I have to find out what the deal is. But I mean this is this is unbelievable. Similarly, the Ninth Circuit on the same day, it's a couple days ago, said that ICE cannot designate these unaccompanied alien children as MS-13 and detain them. They have due process whether it be designated. You can't just designate them as MS-13. Now, if you're an American citizen, you're right. But the deal here is they're illegals. So they could be detained and deported even if they're not gang members. I mean, this is unbelievable what's going on in the lower courts. I could go on and on, you know, the fact that you're saying Trump is racist when, you know, he didn't extend the status for Sudan, Haiti, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, but he actually did extend it much to our chagrin for Somalia. Now, Somalia is an all-black country, so I don't know what, you know, how you could even make that argument, but it doesn't matter, even if he is a racist. Um, immigration law is immigration law, does it? So here's the important point I wanted to get to. I don't want to get so into the immigration for now, even though this is very important. Because, again, it's one of the few progresses that this administration has been making, and it's being countermanded by the courts. I want to demonstrate to you why getting Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court is not going to change this trajectory. We just had a Supreme Court case a couple of months ago, not a couple of years ago, not a couple of decades ago, Trump v. Hawaii, where – the court explicitly threw out this line of legal thought that you could take a lawful power of the president that would otherwise be clearly dictated by statute. Not only is it lawful for the president to take it, he actually is required to do what he's doing. But nonetheless, because you believe he enjoys it a little bit too much because he doesn't like the people that are the subject of it, it makes it invidious and thereby discriminatory and thereby lawless for him to enforce the law. The, the, the Supreme Court said you can't do that. That's not that, that's just not kosher. And the lower courts are just disregarding that. Why? Because the, the law schools, the ACLU, the legal culture and the legal profession is already irreversibly owned by the left. So whereas you will never have a judge, even the best conservative lower court judge, will never have the guts to explicitly disregard something the Supreme Court just did from the left, you'll have the left, leftist lower court judges do it all the time the other way. Watch for this to become commonplace once Kavanaugh's um, confirmed because they believe that the whole thing is irrelevant and that the courts ha- you know, has no legitimate power anymore. That is fine as long as we have a movement in place to delegitimize these forum shop lower courts. Let's make it happen, folks. Okay, you get Kavanaugh on. Fine, I understand it. I understand it. I get it. But what else are we going to do? That's not good enough to just to fight on the 1%. Let's fight on the other 99%. Now, 
So that, 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 that's one thing. Our work on the court is not done. That's lesson number one from this show. What to do after Kavanaugh. And, and this is why. Lesson number two is elections. Where the hell is our movement when it comes to primaries? Why am I the only one who focuses on primaries? You could have the most egregious rhino in a solid red state with a legitimate challenger, and our movement won't rally to them, donate to them, focus on them, Fox, Talk Radio, Drudge, Rush, all these young millennial conservatives that get on Fox News. You know, where the hell are they? They're too stupid to focus on it. We have this stupid lifelong Democrat holding a seat illegitimately in the state of Mississippi, and you have Chris McDaniel, the most articulate conservative you'll ever find, running against him. He's just five points behind, by the way, in a new poll taken. We won't rally to him. That's the last remaining primary because the primary is going to be on general election day. So the next lesson is to focus on primaries. Why do I say that? As I'm talking, they just held the cloture vote. Right, the procedural vote, and it was 51 to 49 because Flake and Collins voted yes. And once they voted yes, phony Joe Manchin, so you know, then they, it would have been 50 50. Um, they would have gotten it because of uh, the vice president's tiebreaker. So then when it was no longer a problem, then Manchin votes yes. What a fool. We'll see the fallout of what happened, what, what, what's going to happen tomorrow with the final vote, whether Manchin and or Collins flake flake out. It's not not a done deal yet. But notice it was 51, not 52. Why? Because Lisa Murkowski voted no. Lisa Murkowski, unlike, you know, Susan Collins is from Maine. She's from Alaska. I want to remind you, I was the only major national conservative figure to endorse Joe Miller. And when I talk about Joe Miller, everyone's like, oh, 2010. No, not in 2010. He ran again in 2016. And there were favorable circumstances with multiple candidates that with a little bit of money, he had a strong showing without a dime to his name, but he didn't win. He could have easily won because there was a three-way race. She got the Republican nomination. You had a very prominent Democrat, like two liberals actually running, one independent, one Democrat. And then Joe Miller got the Libertarian nomination. Now, he's not really a Libertarian. He's a solid social conservative, constitutional conservative. He's so smart, such a good man. And you want to talk about Kavanaugh, where, where you have a guy who's respected his whole life and he's burned to the ground. Joe Miller was burned to the ground and, and Republicans piled onto it. His good name. And I'm sick of this. And no one's there for him. And by the way, that's going to be lesson number three. I'm not going to be able to get to all the lessons, what to do after Kavanaugh, but I'm going to have a piece coming out if it comes out in time, we'll link to in show notes six lessons Republicans and conservatives should take from the Kavanaugh win, assuming we win in the end, but probably won't learn these lessons. And one of them is going to be is it takes a village. When the entire right of center of this country unites and rallies, it makes a difference. But that only happens when it's an establishment golden boy like Kavanaugh where you have Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush making calls on their behalf. Because the establishment's for them, and the conservatives will always rally when an establishment guy is falsely accused. But when a grassroots guy is falsely accused, the establishment will not rally. The, the levers of the Republican media and infrastructure and organization and party brokers will not rally to them, and often they'll trash them. I want to read to you my endorsement 
of Joe Miller, September 7th, 2016. And I made the point at the time, I said, you know, when everyone's like, look, I, Trump, I have values issues with him, but I can't let Hillary, Hillary win. And I was like, look, I have no problem with that. But it's not binary. There's a third option. Whatever you want to do with the presidential election, do. But focus on some of these primaries. Elect better House Republicans. Elect better Senate Republicans. And you see how prophetic that warning was now that we have feckless Republicans. And by the way, head into November, even if we would miraculously win, which definitely the polls are tightening, although Democrats are still way ahead, but not Watergate levels. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. But... I, 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 I pointed out, but, but anyway, I mean, these, these guys are going to be MS-13 Republicans. Here's my, um, my endorsement. Is there one constitutional conservative actually running in a statewide election who could excite the grassroots? Thus far, almost every conservative running for Congress has lost. But Joe Miller is about to change the rules of the game by delivering some just desserts to Rhino Lisa Murkowski, who has a 20% liberty score. Conservatives know they need a new party to represent them on the national scene. But for now, it's important just to elect individuals down ballot in individual states on any party line that grants them legitimate ballot access. After Lisa Murkowski, the queen of all rhinos, ran a successful writing candidacy against the GOP nominee Joe Miller in 2010, wouldn't it be poetic justice for Joe Miller to knock her off in the general election? While the tables are turned this time, and she is technically the GOP nominee, he will actually be on the ballot as a libertarian, and didn't lose to her in the primary. Our republic will not rise or fall on your vote for president alone, but whether you acquiesce to this corrupt system or take your own destiny into your own hands. In many respects, Lisa Murkowski is the ultimate Republican in name only, but in another respect, she epitomizes what the party has become, a party that stands for nothing but a less enthusiastic expression of the other side's agenda. Murkowski has a 20% liberty score, making a typical failing grade seem conservative. Here is what we wrote in her official CR member profile. Murkowski is one of the most liberal Republicans in Congress and has moved even further to the left ever since winning re-election outside of the Republican Party. Her votes align with liberals on spending, immigration, energy, subsidies, and foreign affairs. She is pro-choice and a member of the Republicans for Choice and has publicly stated her support for federal funding for Planned Parenthood. She's also a supporter of same-sex marriage and has a mixed record on gun rights even though she hails from a strong hunt- hunting state. Over her Senate career, Murkowski has time and again provided Harry Reid a critical vote to achieve cloture on Democrat priorities. Even on basic Republican values, such as a right to work and welfare reform, Murkowski has consistently voted with Democrats. Murkowski makes John McCain look conservative. In recent years, she has voted to fund Obama's amnesty, supported every radical Obama judicial and executive nominee, opposed school choice while claiming to be pro-choice, and sided with Democrats on religious liberty to mandate the private companies fund abortifacients. If this golden calf of supporting the lesser of two evils in a general election extends to this individual as well, count me out. As it is, the GOP Senate roster this year includes such luminaries as John McCain, Johnny Isaacson, Mark Kirk, Todd Young, Rob Portman, Kelly Ayotte, and the Transgender Initiative supporting Richard Burr. Is there no floor to this failed binary approach which has gotten us to where we are today? Imagine Democrats tolerating a slate of Senate candidates one year that is full of candidates exclusively in the mold of Zell Miller, if you remember him from Georgia. And by the way, before I keep reading, I just want to deviate for a minute. Notice how, with the exception of Joe Manchin, every other Democrat held the line. Heidi Heidkamp, when she's down double digits from a state that wants 
uh, Kavanaugh confirmed by like, you know, a three to one margin, a state that Trump won by what, like 25, 30 points. They will stick to their principles from the bitter end, even from enemy territory states. We can't even get Republicans with a modicum of Republicanism in red states. And this is where I don't feel bad for McConnell and all these other people because they weren't with us. I understand you want a Big Ten. But how far does it go? Anyway, let me continue. Thankfully, Alaska will actually get a choice, not an echo, of the Democrat nominee. The nominee for the Libertarian Party in Alaska, Sean Stevens, stepped aside, and the party selected Joe Miller to replace her on the statewide ballot for Senate in November. Unlike in other states, the Alaska Libertarian Party enjoys broad support, and coupled with Joe's existing name ID, there is a chance for him to win a four-person race. Democrats and independents have enough of Murkowski have had enough of Murkowski as well. Some of the more liberal ones will vote for a liberal independent candidate on the ballot, while others will vote for the Democrat nominee. Joe Miller has an excellent chance to pick up the independent-minded ones, along with conservative Republicans. In a year when conservatives have failed to field the constitutionalists on the general election ballot in almost any state, here is one race where they can actually vote their conscience proudly. Joe is a strong, liberty-minded candidate who also deeply cares about sovereignty, national security, religious liberty, a strong civil society, federalism, and has a profound understanding of the threat from civilization jihad. For those of you who are tired of banging your heads against the wall between the false choice of chambercrats and alt-right nationalist populists, we finally have a man on the field. Miller recognizes that he made some novice campaign mistakes in 2010 when he was under fire from all sides in the general election. He bounced back in 2014 and with no outside help, came within a few points of winning against Dan Sullivan, um, Republican from Alaska, another rhino, just not as bad, who has disappointed conservatives on multiple fronts since defeating Democrat Mark Begich for the other Senate seat. Constitutional conservatives are caught between a rock and a hard place with no political home and are out of options for this election cycle. However, our republic will not rise or fall on your vote for president alone, but whether you acquiesce to this corrupt system or take your own destiny into your own hands. This is why we must look at an all-of-the-above approach on issues, strategies, and elections to advance our, can- our agenda. In the state of Alaska, that means looking at the libertarian candidate, who is really a constitutional conservative against a woman who calls herself a Republican, but is the fur- furthest thing from it. This is a race that should unite both those who are somewhat excited or disappointed about the presidential nominee. A half century after Phyllis Schlafly rallied for a choice not an echo in American politics, we are stuff we are stuck with faint echoes who can't even hold the ground of the echoes of just one generation ago. It's time we begin striving for better than the low expectation of voting for the evil of two lessers. On a national scale, that will have to wait until next cycle, but in Alaska the opportunity is right in front of us. How fortuitous that is watching Lisa Murkowski now and I'm just tweeting this article out. Sorry for the interruption. I got to get this out. I mean, this is important, this point. Um, but it's not just about Lisa Murkowski. We have a similar dynamic now where we've actually moved backwards. We're actually losing Freedom Caucus seats. You know, um, just last night, this guy, um, <clears throat> I forgot his name, this guy who got the nominee for Ron DeSantis' seat in Florida 7, okay? This guy. Guess what? He just announced that he doesn't want Trump campaigning with him. Now, I will tell you, he's not doing so because he opposes Trump from the right, okay? He's doing it because he opposes him from the left. We're losing Ron DeSantis' seat. We lost Jim Bridenstine's seat. Some Freedom Caucus members might not make it in the general election. Even if Republicans pull off a miracle and hold the House and pick up a few seats in the Senate, we will actually have a more liberal roster of Republicans than even the roster we just had. 
And yet, just like then when we had one general election, we had a chance to elect a conservative in Alaska, we have Mississippi with Chris McDaniel. And that's why before I go on, I just want you to know, you know, everyone's going to be gaming out, and I'm going to do it myself, R versus D politics, but it's important to at least know who are the right R's. And I want you guys to look these people up and donate to them because these are, these are the ones who matter. And I'm probably leaving some out because I didn't prepare this list, and I'll add them later and send me anyone you have. But certainly we want to protect Dave Bratt, Ted Budd, Rod Bloom in Iowa, Scott Perry in Pennsylvania. Obviously, I have Mark Harris, who's in a tough race in North Carolina, and he is the one guy who did defeat an incumbent in the primary. He's a, he's a challenger. Obviously, Ron DeSantis for governor. And of course, Chris McDaniel in Mississippi. And of course, in, in Texas District 21, our dear friend, Chip Roy. A couple others I'm, I'm missing, but those are the ones we should focus on for now. There are other options aside from just focusing on what Fox News puts in front of your plate. Don't tell me if Rush Limbaugh and Drudge <clears throat> and Fox News weren't focused on Joe Miller in 2016. He wouldn't have won. He would have won. He absolutely would have won. He had, he, he had not a penny to his name. Not a penny to his name. And yet, you know, he had a pretty respectable, I would say, a respectable showing. Um, you know, somewhere, somewhat of a respectable showing. I'm forgetting what the, the vote was. I think Murkowski got 44% in the end. Um, but Joe Miller got 30. Because, you know, the Independent got 13%, the Democrat got 11%. I was right. Murkowski only got 44%, and a lot of the people was just by default. Imagine if the Republican apparatus would have supported Joe Miller. Well, what do you mean? He was running on the libertarian ballot. But you got to have some standard. Judicial nominees, I thought, was the bare minimum. But no. 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 We didn't learn our lesson. So that's lesson number two. To actually have a strategy starting the day after November, to work, if you're not going to work towards another new party, which I really think we need to do, to A, I believe we need to work in each state to change the party rules or state legislature, the state laws, and actually abolish popular primaries and have representative conventions, which will make it easier to defeat incumbents. But to actually get our guys in, at least in red states, at least in red presidential states. I challenge all of you. I challenge all of us. If you're going to say, we have to vote for every Republican in November no matter what, fine. But shut the blank up if you have no strategy to stop this stupid lesser of two evil thing. We slept through the last two primaries. You know, We focused on 2010, 2012, 2014. We had a movement. We didn't succeed that much, a little bit. And then we went backwards in the Trump era in 2016 and 2018, where we're just so exhausted. We have no focus. Any crap who gets the Republican nominee, we rally behind. And we don't even work to get better guys the nomination. 
That is the next lesson. Now let's move on to what this means in October, from now until the election. Some horse race here. A lot of people have noticed that the polls have moved um, because Republicans finally held the line on something, even though, again, they're holding the line under the false pretense of taking back the courts, the false pretense that we need to promote judicial supremacy but just get our guys on there, the false pretense that that will cover up every other betrayal, which I guess it is. But nonetheless, they held the line, with the exception of Murkowski, who the establishment helped nominate um, in 2016, even though she left the party, but then came back, and they didn't challenge her. Um, and you know, conservatives were complacent, as we mentioned. So when you hold the line, it actually does wonders. Look at that. Look at that. The IBD tracking poll, Investors Business Daily, their their tip poll, last month they had the generic ballot at 11. Now it's at 2. We're seeing that in the North Dakota Senate race, the Indiana Senate race, the Missouri Senate race. Um, So, you know, it's – you see when they even hold the line on one issue – and they speak with intrepid principle, don't sound like they're mini-me echoes of the Democrats, albeit with a sour face, but they actually stand there and speak with conviction, and they push back, they win. You know, um, now, they're still in trouble. They're still going to, you know, unless there's some seismic shift, it's still enough to lose the House because if you go race by race, if you just look at the seats that they're going to lose in blue states, see, blue states is the big problem. They're juicing up the red states, but the blue state, they're, they're, no matter what, there's going to be a tsunami. And also a lot of states, they've been complacent in like Michigan and Illinois and Pennsylvania. They don't have – where they should be competitive, they don't have good statewide candidates, and they're actually getting crushed. So that's going to have a big down-ballot effect. If you just look at the states that are ready, the the seats that Democrats already are favored to turn over, or at least are toss-ups, from California, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, um, Illinois, Virginia, where they're doing very bad in general, they're trending bad. There's about six or seven states there. There's 28 to 30 problematic seats right there. Um they only need 23 to win. And a lot of them, the die is already cast. You know, already the Democrats are outspending the Republican five to one in some of these races in New Jersey. Um, I have a list I'm just compiling. I'm going to try to do an analysis at some point, but there's already about 15 seats that are gone. They would have to downright run the table on like 40 other races uh, in order to, to hold the House. I, I think the difference is that because the map of the Senate is in red states, that's where you're seeing this wide gulf, where on the one hand, they're looking better, um, and they might be able to pick up a few seats. But again, it's not going to make much of a difference. See, this is my point. Are they going to have more power than they have now? No. I mean, it would be a, a monumental win for them to hold the House narrowly and pick up a few seats in the Senate, but that, that's not going to change anything. It's not going to change the dynamic that you have now. Their unwillingness to to 
stand for us on healthcare, immigration, budget, you name it. It's not going to change unless we change it, unless we remain focused and get Trump focused on vetoing these bills, get Trump focused on making the right primary picks. So, but nonetheless, you know, for the remainder of October, you're seeing the difference it makes that they're likely going to pick up seats in the Senate. And rather than losing 50, 60 seats in the House, they might only lose, let's say, 30. And the Democrats will have a narrow hold, and it'll be easier to win it back in two years than it would have been had you not had this fight. But another lesson to learn is, what if Republicans actually said, you know what? This actually worked out pretty good for us. Let's stand strong on other issues. Here's my proposal you're not going to hear elsewhere because we're always forward-looking, not reactive. And I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm trying to take sensitivities of Republicans and their way of thinking the way it is right now, how they could possibly have a shot at winning back the House. And I'm not even saying they should call back both houses into session and do everything we want to do. God forbid. They would never do that. There's a statement, and in itself, it's a very telling statement by um, this guy Gorman, who is a, 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 one of the head honchos at the National Republican Congressional Committee, NRCC, in charge of house races. He said the Supreme Court fight has energized conservatives in an undeniable way. The Republican Party does three things, cut taxes, kill terrorists, and confirm judges. When we do these things, we energize our base, and we are also appealing to independent voters. He's right and wrong in some ways. I mean, unfortunately, this is the dope Republicans get everyone hooked on, but even then, those things aren't enduring. Cut taxes, yeah, they do that, but it, it's becoming meaningless because taxes is not the issue of our time. It's it's healthcare, it's anti-market interventions, it's the spending, it's the debt, um, and the fact that they grow government without taxes. Um, confirmed judges, yeah, but as we noted 50 million times, it doesn't fundamentally change the judiciary and the legal profession. Kill terrorists, well, who are you killing in Afghanistan? I mean, and then killing terrorists is meaningless if you don't have a good immigration policy, as we've noted 50 million times. But nonetheless, they recognize that confirming judges is something that does juice up the base, appeals to independent voters, it unites disparate factions of the party and the movement. So go ahead and do this. You know, when there was no way that the Confederacy was going to win the Civil War, they just, there was no way they were going to win the war. But they had that surprising victory at Bull Run. Now, when you're down and the other side is just much bigger and always winning things, you can't afford to merely win. You have to seize the one opportunity you get and follow up on the win and turn it into winning of the war. And Stonewall Jackson said, give me 10,000 men and I'll take Washington. And in retrospect, that probably was the only opportunity they would have ever gotten to win the war. So to, to, to kind of build on that analogy here, you have a victory. It's undeniable that it has shifted the polls. Um, you know, I'm just trying to get the numbers here. A poll, a generic ballot among white <coughs> white women, white women. Where is this? 
This is the Marist poll. July 22nd, it was D plus 14. Devastating. The summer was devastating. I mean, when you're lo- just to give you a sense of, you know, proportion, Trump won white women by nine points. They were down by 14. September 9th, it was D plus five. September 30th, it's D plus one. That's still bad. You will lose an election. You can't lose white women or even draw even because keep in mind, these are not all women. These are white women only. So, you know, you get crushed with minorities, you're going to, you're going to still lose. But, you know, that's the difference between that and a Watergate style election. Okay. Imagine if the Republicans did the following killing three stones with one, three, (laughs) three birds with one stone. Sorry about that. Right now, they plan to get out of town. What if they would cancel the entire October recess and hold the Senate in session the entire, really up, up until the election? Trump has a backlog of not just judicial nominees, but executive nominees. We've spoke about, spoken about this a lot. It is the most understaffed administration this late into the tenure of a presidency ever. In modern history. Force the Democrats to burn the clock. So now the debate is over nominees where they have to attack people individually or they'll be forced to cede the time and then you'll get them confirmed, one or the other. But here's the trick. You don't need the House for this where Republicans incumbents are on defense and need to campaign. In the Senate, it's the Democrats that are on defense. I think Dean Heller from Nevada is the only Republican on defense. Every other one is a sitting re- Democrat. Joe Manchin, Tester, McCaskill, Heidkamp, um, N- Nelson from Florida. You know, there's, there, there's several more. Maybe, you know, things go better. Obviously, Joe Donnelly from Indiana. Um, keep them off the campaign trail. Force them either to cede the time and you win the battle or guess what? Guess what? You take them off the campaign trail. And then all the while, you have a narrative that you're building in the Senate that their challengers could hit them on while they're in the campaign trail because all the Republicans are challengers. They're not in the Senate. See what I'm saying? So you could have the House Republicans campaign. Keep the Senate in. Keep the Senate in. But none of these thumbsucker loser 20-something people that get this Twitter following and go go on Fox News will make the case and get in Trump's ear. But that is what I want to suggest here. Before looking, follow up on the Kavanaugh victory. Obviously, I believe we should follow up on everything. I, I'm going to have a lot of other ideas. You know, clearly suburban voters are turned off by violence and mob rule, and they're going to get very violent. Run ads on that. And tied into the drug crisis, you know, there was just a massive bust in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Massive bust of a drug and and sex trafficking ring led by illegals in a sanctuary city of Lawrence with enough fentanyl to wipe out half of the state. There's your drug crisis that Congress just ignored. And Republicans refused to hang around the necks of Democrats. Marsha Blackburn's really the only one doing this in Tennessee. And that's another thing. You know, for all the accusations that I'm a purist, I don't need a Mike Lee or a Ted Cruz or a Louis Gohmert or a Dave Brett. I would take a Marsha Blackburn in every red state. Is that too much to ask for? 
Every red presidential state, we have a Marsha Blackburn. Okay, is that, is that too much to ask for that we work towards that goal? She's the best of the candidates. Almost all of them are pukes. That's where we are. So again, again, learn the lessons. It takes a village. You have to be united. You have to focus on primaries. You have to hold the line. But just remember when it comes to the judiciary, not in the politics, we're winning on the politics of it, but the actual policy outcomes, there's a lot of pitfalls ahead if we think we somehow just won back the judiciary. We have not. We need to embrace the Democrat delegitimization of the judiciary. Shake on it. Okay, you want to take politics away from it? Then take it away from it. But that applies to all your cases, too. We need to have a forward-looking movement. If we have one, there's a lot of things we can do, and I'm very optimistic. If we continue on the path of just reacting to the liberal media, if we are so into owning the libs that we ignore the libs on our own lawn, we're going to continue to be like an army that is self-immolating every step of the way. A lot more on this next week, obviously, when the outcome is more, you know, definitive and final. But for now, I just wanted you guys to hear these thoughts. A lot of issues we broached today, and in each one of them, we're going to follow up on it, especially as the election gets closer. We are going to do some election coverage analysis, just horse race analysis. I know some of you are interested in that. You know, we'll pretend that these Republicans are good. But remember, you know, we are losing a lot of seats even without losing to the Democrats. Focus on primaries. Focus on primary reform. Focus on other options. God bless you all. Have a great weekend. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 